connections inside your mind there. Go down, swim through the darkness, black water flowing, red caps sparkling like diamonds, green eyes glowing, turning and spinning and losing and winning life's tapestry weaves nothing new. Finding the end, it becomes a beginning kaleidoscope of changes through. The answer is in you. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm Frank Uly, sitting in for summer host Amanda Uly and regular host T. Hetzel. It is Wednesday, August 30th, 2017, and this afternoon our guest is Mike Stacks, author of Swim Through the Darkness, My Search for Craig Smith and the Mystery of Matria Kali, and he's also the founder, editor, and publisher of Ugly Things Magazine, and Mike is joining us by phone from California. Hi, Mike. Hi, Frank. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Um, so we just heard a track by the group The Penny Arcade, which Fred Craig Smith was the front man of, and that was written by him. And um, you've written this book about this pretty unknown 60s musician. So could you give us uh, kind of a short summary of what the book's about? Yeah, well, Craig Smith, you know, is not a, a um, name that's familiar to, you know, even people that are connoisseurs of 60s music. He was really quite obscure. But he wrote songs for a number of quite well-known people, including the Monkees and Glenn Campbell and Andy Williams. And um, I first came across Craig when I heard this album that was credited to someone called Maitreya Kali. And the album was called Apache and Inca. It was like a double album, one album Apache, one album Inca. And there was no mention of Craig Smith, it was, it was Maitreya Kali, and it was covered with these bizarre symbols and bizarre writings, obviously the work of someone that's quite disturbed or even schizophrenic. So I expected the music to be kind of incoherent, and it turned out to be quite the opposite. I, I was really blown away by the quality of it. And uh, that got me wondering about who this Maitreya Kali guy was and um, what the story was behind this bizarre album that was only pressed in you know, an edition of like 100 copies or less. Wow. So um, I started piecing together the story, and, and uh, it kind of sucked me in, and 15 years later I was still trying to piece it together, and finally uh, the book was published, and, and even now I'm still piecing together further pieces of the puzzle of this guy's a rather strange and uh, extraordinary life. Yeah, that is, is quite a wild topic. I just read the book, and I commend you on uh, sticking with the trail for all those years because it it seemed like every few years you get some new huge reveal that uh, you didn't anticipate as you went along. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, it was it was very slow going to piece together the story because, you know, first of all, his name is Smith, which is, of course, the most common name there is. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was, uh, as I soon learned, he was essentially homeless, for over 30 years of his life. Mm-hmm. So um, I was finding it very difficult to find much information about him. I even went so far as to um, hire a private investigator wow. 
dig into it, and, and uh, he didn't even find much. You know, there was no credit record. There was um, very little to go on other than a few addresses that were long since, you know, vacated by him. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, it, it, it would go months and months without, without any kind of fact coming up, and then every few months there would be something big. Um, or something small, you know, and one thing led to another. I gradually started finding more people who'd known him at different points in his life, and that's really how I managed to piece it together. There'd be someone who knew him when he was uh, a child. There'd be somebody who was in a band with him later on. There would be somebody who ran into him on the street during his homeless years. And um, so gradually I was able to um, piece the story together. But, yeah, it was... It was at times slow going and often, you know, chasing down blind alleys and, um, you know, with very little reward. But uh, it mm-hmm. was worth it for, for the uh, the big reveals as they came, you know. Mm-hmm. Did you or, or your, your family members at a certain point question your sanity and continuing to doggedly pursue this? Um, I think, uh, well, I'm fortunate to have very understanding family members. And, uh, you know, they know that as a writer... Um, uh, and a researcher, sometimes these things do take years and years, and they do require a lot of dogged footwork. You know, this went beyond anything I'd done before. But um, just with my work with Ugly Things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, often on article, it takes several years to put together. It's just this mm-hmm. one took a lot longer. And, and, you know, it wasn't to the exclusion of everything else. I was having to do other things during those 15 years. Sure. I wasn't able to devote myself exclusively to it, but certainly sure. thousands of hours of what went, went into it, and um, um, yeah, they, they're very understanding, fortunately. Yeah, I, th- I think some of the things that you turned up are, are quite amazing, and I, I, I want to tease our listeners because I don't want to reveal some of the things that are, because you, you originally did a story in Ugly Things. In fact, you wrote the liner notes to the Penny Arcade CD like in 2004. Right, that was one of the first um, things that came out of this uh, mm-hmm. journey, was I discovered that Maitreya Kali who was Craig Smith, mm-hmm. was in a band called the Penny Arcade. And um, I, I located Don Glute, the mm-hmm. bass player of the Penny Arcade, first of all. Mm-hmm. And he had all kinds of uh, music and stuff. So um, I was able to arrange with Sundays for their unreleased Penny Arcade album to finally be issued. Wow. It was produced by Mike Nesmith in 1967. And so we contacted Mike Nesmith. He didn't have the master tapes anymore, but fortunately Don Glute had a very clean acetate dub of it. And uh, Nesmith gave his okay to uh, release it. In fact, he was quite excited about it because he had uh, lots of good things to say about the group and especially Mm -hmm. Craig and his uh, songwriting. It was, uh, Craig wrote the song Salesman, which uh, Mike personally picked out to sing and record with the monkeys mm-hmm. on the Pisces Aquarius Capricorn and Jones limited album. Right. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how uh, there's some big names that pop up throughout this uh, this story, and you know one of the first ones is uh, is Andy Williams, right? I mean, did you try to reach any of his people? I mean, he's passed, obviously, but yeah, I mean, uh, he was still alive at the time I started the book, mm-hmm. but I was not able to get through mm-hmm. um, to Andy. Um, it, it, you know, he he was. He's just one of those people that wasn't accessible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, subsequently I learned that he most certainly probably would not have wanted to talk to me just based mm-hmm. on his later um, run-ins with Craig because mm-hmm. um, Craig, uh, as, you know, the book tells you, um, I mean, you know, just a sort of, as a synopsis of what happened, Craig was a very um, 
talented songwriter and singer and performer. Um, started out on the Andy Williams show, and you know, squeaky clean and wholesome entertainment. You can't get any more mm-hmm. sort of white bread and vanilla than the Andy Williams show in mm-hmm. 1963 and 64. And Craig was a part of the cast uh, as a member of the Good Time Singers, you know, singing back up to Andy Williams' easy listening songs. Um, but somewhere along the way, he got into LSD and um, uh, and. Uh, essentially lost his mind and mm-hmm. became Craig Smith became Maitreya Kali is oh. almost Manson like psychedelic guru guy oh. so um, uh, some of the people that he had known earlier in his career you know he would then uh, approach later on as Maitreya and they were thoroughly creeped out and didn't want to deal with him because he was so weird so that was I think the case with Andy Williams who had recorded two of Craig's songs earlier on but um, uh, was certainly not open to having any more dealings with him later on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Andy Williams is one of the few, one of the people that I w- wasn't able to, uh, mm-hmm. to talk too much to my regret. And, and Glenn Campbell was another uh, that I wasn't able to to reach by that point. You know, he he had uh, Alzheimer's pretty severely, and mm-hmm. uh, it seemed like a, a pointless uh, task to, to bother him about uh, a guy who wrote a song for him in 1969. You know, so sure. I didn't pursue that one either. Well, what's interesting to me is, is as you point out, that the two halves of the story, the, the squeaky clean, I mean, just unbelievable wholesomeness, <laughs> like the pictures of these people. Yeah. The folky hootenanny stuff. And then the later, you know, strange stuff. And, you know, from reading the book, uh, there were certain people who knew him in different times. Some people knew him in both time periods. But it sounded like some people, including, I guess, his family, wouldn't really cooperate with you because they knew him in his later times. Is that Yeah, is that I mean, when, you know, like you said, he, he was the most likable, sort of outgoing, gregarious guy that everybody loved with this huge smile. He's like and his high school, val- high school uh, class president, right? Yeah, high school class president, you know, popular with the girls, popular with the guys. He was a star gymnast, mm-hmm. um, offered multiple, squ- uh, you know, um, academic scholarships to colleges, but instead chose to go on the Andy Williams show and, and, you know, was being a success by all accounts. In fact, after the Andy Williams show, he was cast as one of the leads in his own TV show Hmm. called The Happeners, which was kind of like a folk rock Greenwich Village equivalent of the monkeys. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, ABC decided they after they filmed the pilot, they decided that they didn't want to pick it up after all. So the show was dropped Mm -hmm. and uh, Craig began to pursue a musical career. So, I mean, the changes he went through were not that different initially than, you know, people like Jim McGuinn or David Crosby or, or uh, you know, any number of folk rock musicians who started out playing in, like, uh, you know, hootenanny-type music and, you know, discovered rock and psychedelia and marijuana and LSD and went through the various changes that the 60s uh, wrought upon them, you know? But the thing is, Craig, Craig's uh, exploration of the those things went deeper and uh, into deeper and darker places and um, so he came out of it the other side you know it, it, he could have been a huge success you know based on the, the number of people that recorded his songs but instead he came out as kind of this very scary loner figure who no longer people no longer wanted to be around because um, he was scary he was disturbing he got a black widow spider tattooed on his forehead mm-hmm. You know, this is in the 60s. You know, tattoos were, you know, 
quite uncommon, let alone, you know, a black widow spider on your forehead. Uh, and so people were uh, genuinely frightened of him. And, uh, mm-hmm. and they, at that point, they pushed him away. They didn't want anything more to do with him. Mm-hmm. So when I came knocking on their doors or ringing their telephones, even, you know, 40 years later, mm-hmm. they were very wary mm-hmm. about anything to do with this guy, Craig Smith, um, who had, you know, scared them quite deeply in some cases, you know. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it took a lot of patience. And then, you know, some people, um, you know, didn't, did not want to talk to me at all and still wouldn't talk to me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, his family um, went through, you know, through it worse than anybody, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't want to talk to me at all until after the book came out. And then uh, finally his brother, Gary, one of his brothers, uh, gave me a call, and uh, he decided he, you know, he would rather talk to me and and um, come to terms with this rather than keep brushing it mm-hmm. under the carpet as he'd done for you know so many years. And uh, that's proven to be a very, um, very good relationship now, nice. and um, it's opened all kinds of doors, including the you know I'm going to be releasing some music of Craig's that no one's ever heard before that uh, his brother had held on to all these years. So, um, you know, it it turned out to be a really good thing in the end. Wow. Um, One of the things, I guess, in in, in you alluded to this in in the way that the introduction of the book, but, you know, your own journey into the darkness. I mean, when you started out, did you, you know, at a superficial level, did you just think, oh, this is an interesting story about this guy? And at a certain point, did you, did his kind of, dark side influence you emotionally did you have a reaction to that in, in, oh, yeah. in the way that felt I mean, mm-hmm. very very much so mm-hmm. um uh, you know that's why i said it was not only craig's swim through the darkness it, it was my own because mm-hmm. it, the book took me to some really dark places um that i didn't want it to go i mean mm-hmm. i i was you know i'm kind of a idealist and i wanted to uh, you know i thought i could save this guy in some way i knew at that point he was homeless and i knew he'd written songs and he should be collecting royalties enough hopefully there he could you know have a living where he wouldn't be sleeping on the streets so i wanted to find him and reconnect him with that and and somehow save his reputation and tell his story but um it's you know life's pretty ugly thing and uh, i was not able to get to him in time Mm -hmm. um and, uh, you know, the deeper I went into his story and, and uh, found out some of the, the bad things that had happened to him, you know, it was very distressing sometimes because I felt such a kinship to him. Hmm. I loved the music so much, and, hmm. and, and, and uh, so many people had such good things to say about this him as a person. Hmm. Um, and, th- and then there were other things that were just horrible. So uh, he was definitely haunting my dreams, um, you know, as I struggled with these different aspects of his personality and really just desperately wanted to somehow save him it's just a, a natural thing i guess for you know you see a human being in distress and you want, you want to help mm-hmm. them and i was not able to do that mm-hmm. and um and he died um while i was still writing the book he died in in a sleeping bag in a park wow. you know not far from his home where he grew up and and that was just really um you know, heartbreaking for me, mm-hmm. and um, uh, yeah, so it it was at times very depressing, but it was something I felt like I had to see through to the end. You know, it's just that the ending that I expected mm-hmm. would was that I would 
find Craig and have him tell his story if he was capable of doing so. Mm. Um, and the end, and the end, ended up being something completely different, where Craig was dead in a sleeping bag on the street, forgotten, mm. but uh, you know, and sort of unloved, you know, which is mm-hmm. just just uh, heartbreaking. Well, listen, we're going to listen to another example of Craig Smith's music. Um, we've got Mike Stacks as our guest here on Living Writers on WCBN-FM. I'm Frank Uly sitting in for T. Hetzel. We're going to listen to uh, a track that is, we heard earlier, the Penny Arcade, his kind of folk rock Mike Nesmith production. And now we're going to hear a track from his later incarnation as Maitreya Kali. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. This is Sampan Boat. Beautiful sampan boat sails beyond the sea Into the emerald light where we all are free Gods from an ancient past beckon from the shore Stacks, the author of Swim Through the Darkness, the story of Craig Smith and Matreya Kali. Mike, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. So that track was uh, from his later incarnation. How, this album, I guess, was pressed at some custom pressing plant. It sounds like he, during the years when he was kind of starting to you know, really lose his mind, he still had some degree of coherence you were saying in the book when he played music the people that knew him felt he had kind of would relax and get back into his normal or you know pre um dark side kind of mindset is that sort of what you felt yeah i mean that's without exception that's what everybody said um you know he he would um he was declining mentally very rapidly um, and uh, he would often just be talking incoherent, sort of mystical mm-hmm. uh, nonsense, essentially, you know, as far as the will could tell. It had its own internal logic, but um, it wasn't really socially acceptable. You know, he, he'd come back from a trip to, um, to, along the hippie trail, and uh, while there he, he'd been brutally attacked and raped uh, in Afghanistan. He came home and, um, and it was never the same. He, and he wanted to no longer be Craig Smith. He wanted to be called Maitreya Kali, and he insisted that he was some kind of messiah figure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the one hand, he's talking all this messianic 
you know, mysticism. Yeah. And then he picks up a guitar and he'd sing one of his songs and you sing a very engaging and composed and talented person, as you heard of the music there with a beautiful singing voice, you know, writing really, really nice songs. And um, that never left him. And, um, you know, which is, uh, you know, I guess a strange thing, of, uh, a strange aspect of, of schizophrenia uh, and mental illness is that um, uh, doing certain things like playing music can really sort of soothe that and make sense, you know, the voice in his head that he was no doubt hearing, you know, was, would be stilled and he would just have the music coming through him. You know, and I think that's what gives some of these later recordings such um, power and, and mystique. It's, um, they're coming from a place of madness, but there's also this incredible inner calm to them as well and beauty and, and, uh, and also very much loneliness, I, I feel, mm -hmm. is in there. And, um, yeah, I, I think that's really what makes them special. Um, and, and uh, you know, what I discovered later from his brother was that even as late as, um, uh, you know, the late 90s, he would still, whenever he had any money, he would go into a recording studio and record his original compositions. Wow. So he was still making music, and I've heard some of those songs, and they're, and they're very good. He'd still, he was losing his voice, but he could mm -hmm. still write like a true songwriter. You know, a very gifted songwriter. Wow. So you again, you're working in uh, with his brother to eventually release some of that material or the best of that material. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful. I mean, when I finally got to meet Gary, um, you know, I walked into his house and he had stacked up on the dining room table just piles of uh, acetate discs, wow. um, recordings of Craig's music from though going back to like from like 1965 to, best I can tell, around 71. Most of them are undated, um, and most of these songs never appeared in any form before. Oh. And they're really, really good songs, um, mostly just Craig and a, an acoustic guitar, you know, um, which is what he did. He would just go in the studio and record his original music, and then I think he hoped to place them with, with other performers, but... Uh, mm -hmm. He wasn't. He no longer had the social skills or the or the contacts to be able to do that anymore. He was, you know, homeless and uh, really, you know, mentally disturbed. Unfortunately. Wow. One of the interesting things I've I've noticed is I'm a loyal, longtime subscriber to Ugly Things since way back in the early days when it was just a kind of Xerox scene. I want to talk to about to you about Ugly Things in a little bit too. Yes. But, um, I noticed that, that during the course of the book project, you did uh, generate other offshoot things that seem to spring from that. Is that can you uh, mention a couple of those? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just finding people that knew Craig. They, they would have their own stories, um, and those turn, those I turned into stories for ugly things. Uh, for example, the Klinger sisters, um, who were um, uh, you know, four sisters from um, from Los Angeles who were good friends of Craig Smith, and uh, they had their own band. They started out singing uh, on the Danny Kay show, just doing sort of almost like barbershop type stuff. You know, they were kind of like a, almost like a female Osmond Brothers at that wow. point because they were all uh, all Mormon mm -hmm. uh, and uh, very squeaky clean again. Mm -hmm. And then they 
formed a rock band, which they called the Clingers, and they were on the Smothers Brothers show, and they recorded records produced by Kim Fowley and Michael Lloyd, and um, and also Terry Melcher, and so they were working with all these great people, Kurt Betcher as well, and uh, they had fantastic stories, and, and they were really one of the first, you know, high-profile, all-female rock bands playing all their own instruments because, you know, they did it on the Smothers Brothers show, which was in national TV in 1968, and uh, that was one of the you know first times on national TV you'd see, you know, four women playing drums and electric guitars playing, you know, really strong rock and roll. So they were, I think, it, important, you know, they, they were groundbreakers in a way, and um, I mean, there were, there were plenty of other female, you know, rock bands, but uh, they were the first one that, that many people were aware of. They were the first ones to come into American living rooms in the 60s, and that was really quite outrageous, you know, people uh, talking to them, you know, what struck me is how much they, they had to prove to people that they actually were talented and playing their own instruments that people wouldn't believe it because they were girls you know how could they possibly be playing these instruments that was how prejudiced people were back then but you know to this day they still feel so emotional about that because uh, they wanted to be respected as musicians mm -hmm. but yeah that was just one of the stories that came out of um, it spun out of you know researching Craig's story yeah, it's in. I, I like the one about the uh, custom pressing plant too. It seemed like you you were you were leaving no stone unturned. You were trying to find <laughs> yeah, the most yeah, obscure, a, like where the record one. was yeah, made. I, <laughs> I, I found the, the the company that the pressed the Apache and Inca albums. They were a, a custom pressing label, which means um, rather than a conventional record label, it was a place you could just go in there and they would press up a hundred LPs for you with a with an album cover, and you could distribute them yourself. You know, um, and they would generally do that for sort of um, you know, choirs and uh, barbershop quartets and, and things like that. But um, in, you know, 1972, Craig Smith walked in there and and, uh, and had them put, you know press up his Apache and Inca album. So I I contacted the the man who ran the company, Dave Burkus and started talking to him and see if he remembered anything. And in the process of that, you know, he told me more about his company. And I thought, well, this is an, another fascinating story in itself, how he started off in the 1950s as a teenage kid, um, pressing up, you know, 50 copies or, or 10 copies of kids playing piano recitals, running this business out of his bedroom using his... Uh, his own audio equipment and driving the parts around town to the pressing plants and the printing and, and eventually starting his own business and becoming really successful at it. So, yeah, that was another fascinating story. I mean, I got, got to meet so many different people through this. Uh, you know, Dave Berkus now is a very successful, you know, um, entrepreneur, you know, multimillionaire and, and uh, you know, but he welcomed me into his home and, and um, told me his story and shared a lot of music and information with me it was just you know a wonderful experience so you know you know there were times where i was like i said swimming through the darkness and then there were these very also moments of very happy upbeat light things such as meeting the the women that were the Klinger sisters and uh, meeting dave burgers who ran the you know record label that cut, pressed up craig's records so uh, i ended up with some good friends and some great uh, contacts out of this yeah that's uh 
I mean, again, 15 years of hard labor, not, not working continuously for the 15 years, but the, the, the rewards, certainly, it's good that there were other uh, elements to the process other than just telling Craig's story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was moments of frustration, but, you know, what pulled me along was just, I, you know, I love, I love a good mystery story and trying to solve the, a mystery and piece together a person's life, especially one so strange and, uh, as Craig's. You know, it was it was exciting. I, I I loved, you know, every minute of well, not every minute of it, but I I loved doing it. And uh, you know, otherwise I wouldn't have continued for as long as I did and, and pursued it all the way to you know, having a book published about um, this unknown, essentially unknown uh, musician and songwriter. And and uh, you know, that's what I try to emphasize when I talk about the book is. It really doesn't matter if you know who Craig Smith is. In fact, mm -hmm. it's probably better that you don't know anything about him because mm -hmm. really it's a, it's a human interest story. It's a story about the 60s and the 70s and what that did to people. Uh, it's a story um, um, about mental illness and homelessness, and it's got many different dimensions to it. So it's not really a story aimed at people who are fans of Craig Smith because there's only or at least before the before I started telling a story, there was only ever a handful of those anyway. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things about um, that and about ugly things in general is the telling of the stories of people that are completely, you know, the, the times, even in, the, in their day, weren't well known, but now 50 years later are just footnotes at best. And especially someone like Craig Smith, whose music was barely released in its day, the, uh, the yeah. whole album didn't even come out, and um, but I know one of the things I in, in reading the book, and I and I want to you know compliment you, and and as with your writing and ugly things, I mean you you give such a, a evocative uh, telling of the of the story and the way you write, and um, you know add in some sort of the global context, so it's not just you know he did this, he did this, but you you blend it into a very uh, enchanting mix, I would say. And well, thanks. I mean, to, yeah, to me, uh, the most I, I like to tell the stories, and I like it to be uh, a story, not just a dry sort of record-collecting kind of article, an encyclopedia entry. Because uh, you know, some people say, "Oh, all the bands from the '60s, their stories are all pretty much the same," because on some level they mm -hmm. are. You know, they you know four kids from the neighborhood who start playing music in a garage, and then they make a couple singles, and then they break up and go to college and go to Vietnam or whatever. Exactly. But, you know, that's a very shallow way of looking at things because they're all different. In many, there are many aspects of them are different because uh, there's so many different personalities involved, the, the regional differences, um, and, and, you know, infinite variations. So um, if you tell the story properly, they're all different, and uh, that's what makes it compelling to me. And, and the other thing is just... We've read the story of the Beatles. We've read the stories of the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix over and over again. You can go to Barnes and Noble and pick up six to ten books on each of those artists. You know, um, why not tell the stories of the people who didn't make it? Because they're every bit as um, interesting, and in so many cases more so than the people that did. You know, because you know the most interesting thing in the world is not you know making a million dollars. The most interesting and the uh, interactions with other human beings and, and uh, the um, uniqueness of the art that you leave behind. So 
that's really what Ugly Things is all about. And, uh, and the same thing with uh, Swim Through the Darkness. It's really just about telling the stories almost of, you know, I, I don't want to say, say losers, because uh, but that's how some people would view it, because in America we like to judge the things, the level of success by how much money something makes. But, you know, we know that, um, you know, <laughs> Katy Perry makes more money than, uh, you know, she's made more money than the Muddy Waters ever made in his life. But, you know, whose art is going to stand the test of time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we know McDonald's serves, you know, the most burgers, but, you know, they're also the worst burgers. So that's, uh, that's kind of the uh, same mentality that, uh, that I'm thinking of with ugly things. Well, on that note, let's listen to a track from one of the other bands that you've championed in the pages of Ugly Things, and um, we're going to hear The Misunderstood with Eye Unseen. Again, this is Living Writers. Our guest today, Mike Stacks. Understood here with Eye Unseen on Living Writers, and we're talking to Mike Stacks. Welcome back. Thank you. And um, that group was one that I had never heard of before they were featured in Ugly Things um, a few years ago. And uh, to tell us a little bit about their story. Yeah, the, the, the Misunderstood is an, is an example of a, you know, that story is completely different from any other band that I know of. Um, they were formed in Riverside, California, which is um, east of Los Angeles, northeast of where I am in San Diego. Kind of a nothing town in some aspects, no, no disrespect to the people of Riverside, but, you know, it's kind of a nowheresville kind of a place, but these, uh, you know, teenagers came together as the misunderstood. And what, what I think made them most unique is that they had um, a steel guitar player um, rather than a uh, regular lead guitar player, uh, a guy called Glenn Campbell, different Glenn Campbell, obviously. And uh, he played his instrument um, in a way that I've never heard anyone else play steel guitar, where he's using fuzz boxes, he's using feedback, he's uh, turns it into sort of a psychedelic uh, instrument, uh, also incorporating elements of blues, he's using bizarre tunings. So they're influenced by bands like the Yardbirds, but they have this insane instrument that no other band has, so it changes it and elevates it to something uh, even better. And, uh, or at least more, you know, not necessarily better, let me walk that back a bit, but at at least uh, very, very unique and completely distinctive and, and, uh, uh, and their own. 
finding much success in Riverside. Um, so a uh, local DJ called John Peel, who later cropped up on the BBC and uh, now sort of an iconic uh, figure in, in music history, he was a DJ in San Bernardino next to Riverside at the time and uh, recommended they go to London. So they all got on a boat, went to London, and uh, tried to make it there. And uh, while they were there, they recorded about half a dozen songs, including the one you, we just listened to, that were really fantastic and the precursors of psychedelic music. This was uh, late 1966, uh, just as psychedelia was starting to manifest itself, um, but before it was really on the commercial radar at all. Unfortunately, um, the Vietnam draft board came calling and the band was pulled apart right when their first single was released and, and you know, to launch to quite a big uh, media blitz in the UK. So they were pulled apart and never really got to go any further than that. So um, uh, they, they were kind of lost, a lost band in many ways. Uh, you know, collectors certainly knew about the handful of singles that came out. Uh, and uh, there was a reissue eventually with all the music that was recorded back then. But um, they really should have been one of the big bands of the era. You know, they should have been there right when Pink Floyd and Jimi Hendrix and all those bands were breaking out at the beginning of 67. But um, instead, the lead singer was in boot camp. And then uh, he decided he didn't want to go to Vietnam. So he ran away to India and became a Hindu monk. Hindu monk living in a Stone Age type ashram and basically hiding out from the FBI for a couple decades um, to evade, uh, you know, the draft and, and to pursue his spiritual beliefs. So, um, really a, a crazy and unique story, and um, uh, you know, one that I really enjoyed researching. And uh, in that case, I was able to talk to all the band members. They were all. And they all are still alive and um, and uh, very proud of their legacy. And that was, um, pardon me, I'm <coughs> having a little moment here. <laughs> the, um, that band, gosh darn it all, hang on. I have a little sip of water. That band um, received kind of the biggest treatment in Ugly Things to that time. You gave them a three-part feature story of their three parts of their of their history and subsequently you published a book with the um rick brown i guess one of the band members yeah with the lead singer rick brown yeah the the ugly things feature ran for three or four i think it was actually maybe four yeah i think it was four installments and that was the first sort of time i really that was the longest thing we'd done in ugly things at that point and i think i i was at that point sort of um, building towards writing a book, which would eventually, you know, end up being Swim Through the Darkness. But there was a misunderstood book as well, which was sort of a different approach. Um, Rick Brown, the lead singer of The Misunderstood, and I um, had worked to, together writing a movie screenplay about Misunderstood and uh, his story, uh, you know, especially as, as seen through his perspective and his subsequent adventures in India and... Uh, and Nepal and stuff like that, so it uh, had many different elements to it. So the screenplay, um, we worked on that for a few years, and we decided we'd make a sort of novelized version of the screenplay. So uh, the book was called Like Misunderstood, and um, it's written as, in a sort of, as a sort of novelization of their story, which, so some elements are uh, not fictionalized necessarily, 
necessarily, but um, you know, rewritten as you would in a movie to compress certain things and uh, you know, bring it to life on a, on a movie screen. So um, it's not a um, non-fiction work essentially. It's it's kind of a, you know what Graham Greene used to call an, an entertainment. Um, but that was, you know, also, you know, that was written with as a collaboration with with mm-hmm. Rick Brown and, and another, and it was another step toward me writing a, a full length book, um, you know, which, as I said, turned out to be "Swim Through the Darkness." Did you have any uh, luck with the screenplay? Did you did you try to market it, or did you get any? Well, we had some interest. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a it's a world that I'm not very familiar with, so I couldn't tell if someone was just uh, yanking our chain or. Sure. blowing smoke or, or whether it was serious um there was certainly some interest from uh, uh some film producers in india because they liked the indian aspect of wow. the movie so uh, you know there was a couple points where you know rick was in negotiations with people and it looked like something might actually happen mm-hmm. uh, but it never did but it's still out there you know it's still out there and, mm-hmm. and someday maybe it will it would certainly make a great story i i would I thought the screenplay was pretty strong. It would it was probably make actually a better um, miniseries than a story. Because it's probably too long for a feature movie. It'd probably be better as like a you know eight part TV movie because there's so much to tell there. And as with your uh, Craig Smith project, the uh, Misunderstood themselves also had a bunch of unreleased songs that you were able to put out in um, CD and LP form on your own label. Yeah, that's one of the nice uh, benefits that I found of tracking down musicians from the 60s and interviewing them is that quite often they have unreleased material and quite often it's really good. So it gives me an opportunity to get it out there, either by connecting them with a, a you know a, a label like Sundays, as mm-hmm. I did with the Penny Arcade, mm-hmm. or in some uh, instances doing it myself, as I did with the Misunderstood. And, and several other bands. Um, yeah, it, it, it's just one of those, one of the factors of the, of the 60s that many people recorded but did not release music, you know. Exactly. Yeah, Smile by the Beach Boys obviously comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah including major artists, yeah, but mm-hmm. for, for like the artists that never broke through, in many cases they only had one single, but they recorded mm-hmm. much more stuff that never saw the light of day. So it's... Um, it's great when when we can rescue these things because otherwise they might never have been heard, you know, which is something that, uh, you know, keeps me awake at night sometimes, so, you know, wondering what, how much of this music will be lost because uh, this, uh, you know, generation is, uh, uh, you know, aging out at this point. And, um, and also just the longer it is, the more likely these things are to be thrown away. I, I lost count of the number of musicians that I've interviewed that tell me about all the great music tapes, photographs that they lost, you know, to divorce or mm-hmm. moving or just carelessness. Um, so <laughs> that stuff, this stuff, great music, great art being thrown away in dumpsters every day, you know, at least that's what I'm picturing as I yeah. toss and turn in my bed at night. I got to ask you, you, uh, obviously I can tell from your voice, you did not, uh, grew up in the U.S., but you're now living in Southern California, and you, uh, just give me a little bit of your backstory, how did you evolve your interest in the, the archival and musical history writing, which you've done, I guess, since you were almost just out of high school? Yeah, I, you know, I grew up in England, um, 
as you can probably tell from the accent, and came over to San Diego when I was 18, right out of high school, to play music with a band called the Crawdaddies. And um, I started publishing Ugly Things uh, a few years later. Just uh, I've always been uh, interested in writing. I've always been a writer. I've always uh, been a voracious reader, and uh, and I was also a voracious consumer of fanzines, rock and roll fanzines like Kicks mm -hmm. and Who Put the Bomb and Gorilla Beat and Bam Balam. They were they were huge sources of information for me as I was becoming interested in particularly music from the 60s. So I decided I wanted to to start researching and publishing my own fanzine, you know, researching these stories and putting them out in my own fanzine. And that's how Ugly Things came about. It was, you know, an outlet for my writing and it was an outlet for my obsession with these uh, lesser-known bands from the 60s. And it's sort of continued unabated since then, you know, and, you know, hopefully I've honed it to be of a higher quality than what it started with because it was, you know, just very much amateur, you know, amateur fanzine scribbling, you know, but um, certainly high on enthusiasm. Well, I certainly uh, would give you a big thumbs up for the honing because it's, uh, to me, it's it's like the Bible of 60s rock uh, music writing and collecting. I mean, you get, um, you know, if, if you buy an issue, which is the new issue just came out, I should say, issue number 45, with um, a great story on two great Dutch beat groups, The Outsiders and Q65, and which you wrote, I guess, uh, is originally as part of a, a series of e-books that I guess didn't come out. Right, yes. But um, I, I just want to keep touting the magazine just to our, to our listeners because the, the, the magazine is full of, of these amazing stories like we were talking about with the Craig Smith or the Misunderstood of bands that you've never heard of but you should have heard of and which the writing and the and the way the story is told draws you in and it's not just like you know this happened this happened this happened there's a whole feeling of the atmosphere of the times is brought to life which is to me that some of the best music writing i i applaud that at, at oh thank you yeah that, much, i mean so. that's the attention because i don't want to only be sort of preaching to the choir as they say so um, the intention is to have people want to sit down and read a story about a band or a musician that they've never heard of before and read it just on the strength of um, the fact that it's an interesting story. Um, so anyone who's interested in like nonfiction and, and rock and roll and 60s culture, you know, will get something out of it whether or not they've heard the music. Unfortunately, you know, with... with um, technology nowadays you can instantly sort of just hop on your computer go to youtube and, and hear for yourself exactly what i'm writing about anyway so um and uh, not just me but also you know the the team of writers that i have sort of revolving uh, team of writers including yourself oh, thank that you. have uh, written for the magazine and um it, it, it'll open up uh you know new new worlds for you i'm hoping you know any anyone that reads it'll will discover some new music to get excited about and some interesting stories to wrap their brain around. I'm going to give you a quick uh, hit of one of the bands that has most inspired Ugly Things, The Pretty Things. Here are, here is Judgment Day. What you gonna do Judgment Day St. Peter, won't 
with Judgment Day and we're joining Mike Stacks again who has graciously agreed to be on Living Writers by phone from Southern California. Thanks again, Mike. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, so I love the Pretty Things and they're uh, one of the things I love about Ugly Things magazine is that the band's uh, manager is always given a column. As you have several regulars, you have the Cyril Jordan of the Flaming Groovies, you have uh, Don Crane of the Downliners sect, you have um, oh, I'm going to forget his name now. Mark St. John. Mark St. John. And, yeah, the manager uh, of the Pretty Things. Yeah, so he always gives us updates on how what they're up to. And, the, and I should say, Ugly Things, you started out kind of irregular publication, and then you were kind of twice a year for a while, but you've recently now switched to three times a year. Yeah, there's just so much to write about. I have so much material uh, that I decided to go to three times a year. And, um, you know, that I also enables us to um, stay on top of all the reissues that are coming out of the music from the 60s and 70s that we review in Ugly Things. Um, when we're doing it twice a year, there was just so many of them piling up, and we want to be able to uh, write about them while they're still reasonably new, at least now that it been released in the last you know three or four months as opposed to the last six months. So um, it's working out pretty good. I just have to uh, work a little faster. Well, that's one of the things... Uh about the magazine that's so wonderful is uh, as a person who, you know, doesn't have time to go to the record store every day, I, I read that and it's just like a shopping list, you know. I just uh, get a huge kick out of reading about some of these albums that I'm just dying to hear about that I, I would have known about otherwise from the magazine. One of the, one of the things about uh, publishing the magazine that I have to ask you about is you do have, each issue is so 160 so or so pages you do have a lot of contributors and uh, trying to maintain a steady schedule with uh, volunteers, uh, for the most part, I assume has to be challenging at times? <laughs> yeah, it, it can be. It, I mean, as long as I'm disciplined about it, then um, I can make it work. You know, I, and I, I have a sort of core team of writers who are very um, reliable, and mm. uh, they know, they, you know, they're writing professionally some of them or they're at least experienced and they know how to work with a deadline so as long as i give them a deadline i know i can count on them for it and uh the less professional writers maybe uh that miss a deadline well they just get shifted over to the next issue so somehow it all works out mm -hmm. and as i say as long as i'm you know got my hands on the steering wheel it's going to be okay good because I, I i actually i write uh for uh reference books and i have editors who 
I'm, I'm always <laughs> saying, oh boy, uh, can you give me another few days? And then, you know, the few days are up and I'm like, gosh, God, like three more days. And I know yeah. it's hard when you're a writer because you want to do your best job. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and as you probably know, one of the hardest things with being a writer, and one of the, I think, the best skills to have is knowing when to stop. You know, it's the same with anything. I think, uh, I think even Picasso said that about a painting. You know, the the art of it is knowing when to stop painting, mm-hmm. uh, and it's the same with writing, a, a, especially a long form story. At some point, you have to stop and say, "This is it." Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you could keep going for well as i did for 15 years <laughs> you know or it could go on indefinitely you know mm-hmm. I, I i you know we we probably all have a friend somewhere who's been working on that novel of theirs for 30 years then it'll probably never get finished mm-hmm. so yeah it, the skill is knowing when to stop so are you are, it sounds like you're pretty disciplined then if you start writing do you have like certain number of hours a day you work and you just kind of adhere to that or yeah, that, that's what I try to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I'm probably uh, putting up a front of being more disciplined than I actually am. Sometimes it doesn't feel so disciplined, mm-hmm. but yeah, I do try to write uh, every morning for, you know, two or three hours if I can. Um, that's where I find that my brain is at its sharpest, and it kind of starts declining pretty soon after the, after about three hours or so, it starts going downhill pretty fast, mm-hmm. and I move on to less taxing work. Um, but yeah, I find that that's the best way um, to get get things done is to have a schedule, to have a discipline, you know. And and you know, having read about other writers, um, it seems like that's the way they've always worked, you know. Um, you know, one of my literary heroes is Kingsley Amos, and uh, he had a very strict schedule, you know, where he would get up in the morning and he would write. 500 or 1,000 words or whatever it was, I can't remember now. And, uh, you know, after six months, he'd have a brilliant novel. But he would just write for a few hours every day, and then he'd start drinking. <laughs> yeah, I, hope you, I hope you're not one of those writers, like a Dylan Thomas or somebody. <laughs> I think that's, that's maybe what about half the writers are doing. But mm-hmm. as long as you get in those first three hours and, and stick to it, mm-hmm. you know, eventually you, you're going to get there, um, you know, providing you, you actually can write. <laughs> Well, you certainly are uh, a great writer about music, and I, again, uh, um, there's a lot of writing about music, especially especially with the internet and giving people opportunities to publish blogs and things. But the writing that you do, in particular, is of the highest standard. And I, I don't know how do you feel about other music writer uh, writing that you see out there. I mean, do you are there people that you prefer, that you like, that you look up to? Oh yeah, I mean, there's. Um there's there's a lot of great writers out there and um you know i i look up to um uh, you know i i grew up uh reading new musical express and, and reading writers like mcfarren and nick kent and charles shaw murray mm-hmm. um they they were like a huge inspiration to me greg shaw all all his work um just fantastic uh and uh Miriam Linna and Billy Miller, the, the late great Billy mm-hmm. Miller of Kicks Magazine and Norton Records. Uh, Alec Palau, he just does amazing work um, for Ace Records with all his projects and various other projects that he's done. Mm-hmm. Just one of the best um, archival writers out there, you know, writing about 60s music and mm-hmm. uh, archiving this music. So, yeah, there's, there's 
you know, so many really strong writers out there. And of course, uh, there's also tons of just nothing, you know, writing. But that's fine too. You know, it's kind of it's in this uh, you know digital age. You know, everybody's got an opinion, and it's all out there. You know, whether it's on Facebook or blogs. You know, it's kind of a little bit uh, of a you know massive voices you know and you have to know which ones to trust and know how to find them so um but yeah like it, there are there are a few too many opinions out there but very little substantive writers you know like you know like i was talking about miriam or mm-hmm. or alec you know they they those are guys that are down, down there getting their you know hands dirty you know digging and finding the facts and putting together stories not just somebody you know blowing out a bunch of hot air on some blog about their opinion mm-hmm. about some record, you know, which can be, you know, it, you know, an amusing diversion, but ultimately you don't really learn anything from it. You know, I, I like to learn something. I like to be given some uh, insight and some illumination about music. Not, I don't just need to know somebody's loudmouth opinion of it. No, that's, I agree with you 100%. That's, that's one of the, of the things that, ugly things has always impressed me about is the, the seriousness of what you're doing and the I mean and again I Alec Palau came out here and he's been on my radio show a couple times and he, and he did the uh, Rationals and the A Square of local Ann Arbor bands compilations for Ace and I saw up front how much he respected the musicians and how much effort he took I mean he drove hundreds of miles just to interview a guy in person where, when he could have done it on the phone you know yeah and, yeah I, 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 and I do the same kind of thing. Um, I prefer to do the interviews in person. And yeah, I can't say enough good things about Alec. I mean, he's probably the best that there is out there at the moment. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he should be—he uh, should have a wolf, you know, a shelf full of Grammys at this point. But uh, I know he's not doing it for the uh, trophies. You know, he's doing it for the passion of the music. You know, and, and that shows. And that's clearly what you're doing too. And I. I get the impression that you you a lot of the time you've published ugly things has been like you've had a day job right you haven't had to you've had, you've had to kind of support your writing with other other activities I assume yeah sure because I mean you know um, it's like being a musician you know nobody becomes a musician to make money or if you do you you've got to, you're going about it the wrong way and it's the same with uh, if if you uh, I didn't start writing about obscure bands from the 60s to make money because the, it's just not a way to do so but um ultimately it did turn out in it did turn into something that has made money for me or mm-hmm. you know not not a lot but it, uh, but i make a living now mm-hmm. from being a writer and from publishing ugly things well that is phenomenal and i and we're now unfortunately near the end of our hour so i'm going to thank you mike stacks publisher of ugly things and the author of Swim Through the Darkness, My Search for Craig Smith, Smith and the Mystery of Mitria Kali. And it's out from Process Media. You can find it online, and you can go to the Ugly Things web store, webstore.ugly-things.com, for more uh, access to Mike's work. And I want to say thanks to the Liz for engineering and my lovely wife Amanda, who co-hosted the last couple months of Living Writers. T. Hetzel will be back next week. And we're going to go out with another track that Mike selected, um, a band that you are featuring in multi-part story again, Things to Come. Yep, great band from Long Beach, California, and um, another fascinating 
and a very unique story, I think. All right, well, Mike, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us this afternoon. And thank you for having me, Frank. It's been a pleasure. We, we really enjoyed it, and, and keep on doing all the good work, and good luck with uh, whatever else you've got in the hopper with the Craig Smith Project. I know there are more chapters to come. Well, thanks a lot, Frank. I'll, I'll uh, keep on doing what I do. Okay, thank you. Here now, the things to come on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Está escuchando WCBN Ann Arbor. Uh, y es el tiempo de la media hora norteña. Hey, mi compa, saque la botella, porque hoy voy a morirme de borracho. Ay, te va, chiquitita. Uy. Entre el dolor y el desprecio, por tu culpa me la paso. Si me ves que ando tomando, es porque no me haces caso. 